it's Steve and Dave again. We are Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. No doubt we all want to catch more fish. I want to, and Dave needs to. Ooh, that hurts. But we're all about fly fishing and our love for the outdoors. So let's get after it. A few days before recording this podcast, all hell broke loose in the Yellowstone ecosystem. It wasn't fire, though. It was a torrent of water. Major flooding on the Yellowstone River and its tributaries wiped out stretches of highway in Yellowstone National Park and in Paradise Valley, just north of the park. Significant rain, which took with it melting snow, poured into these rivers. And I watched video of houses falling into the Yellowstone River near Gardner as the raging waters eroded the banks under them. Uh, my sister-in-law sent me video clips of what was going on in her parents' ranch in Paradise Valley. Uh, the ranch borders the Yellowstone River, and they lost one of their barns. Then my sister-in-law's dad spent several hours with his big loader trying to shore up the dike that protected Nelson Spring Creek from the Yellowstone River. Uh, she said it was unnerving, knowing that at any moment the ground could give way under him. Thankfully, the dike held and the Spring Creek was not destroyed. Obviously, this has huge implications for fly fishing in the Yellowstone ecosystem this year and beyond. Not to mention that the northern part of Yellowstone National Park will likely be closed for the season. Whether you fly fish in Montana or Minnesota or Maine or some other state or nation that doesn't start with the letter M, we thought it would be helpful to talk about the effects of flooding on fish and fly fishing. And we couldn't think of a better person to talk with us about this than our friend Dave Cumlane, outfitter and guide, former fly shop owner in Bozeman, Montana, a former member of the Whirling Disease Foundation and Trout Unlimited, and a member of the 2022 class of inductees into the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame. Dave, welcome to our podcast. So before we get to our topic today, we want to congratulate you because you've been inducted into the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame. That is quite an honor. Talk about getting the call for that and, and what that has meant to you. Well, it, it is an honor. And being a, a Wisconsin cheesehead guy in the uh, museum, the Freshwater Hall of Fame Museum is in Hayward. So it was pretty exciting for me. I did not get a call, which is kind of funny. So just quickly, I was reading a TU blog piece and was talking about TU uh, CEO Chris Wood being inducted into the class of 22. And I thought, that's pretty cool. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I would, it would be fun to be a member of that. And I get to the last paragraph of the blog, and it says, former TU staffer Dave Cumling also joins Chris Wood. And I had never heard a word. And so I thought, is that some kind of mistake? And Because I'd never heard anything about it. So I called my son, and he said, yeah. He said, a bunch of people got together and, and uh, submitted uh, your paperwork for consideration. And I said, well, that's pretty cool. And, and the tragic thing about this is the fellow who assembled everything and wrote it up, James Warren, passed away after he filed all that stuff. So he was the point of contact and passed away tragically from heart attack. As a relatively young man, I think maybe in his 50s. Um, so he received the notice. And he wasn't with us anymore. So nobody knew anything until the TU thing. So how I found out was actually kind of cool, but I never got a call. I still haven't gotten a call. I got a letter. 
Wow. Well, that's terrific. We're, uh, we're excited for you. And now we can tell people when we fish with you that we fish with a, with a hall of fame yeah. fly fisher. How's that? <laughs> uh, well, Hey, as we've watched the events unfold in Yellowstone national park and paradise Valley, uh, where, where my folks live for 14 years and I actually live there for a year, uh, we realize that there's a lot we don't know about the effects of flooding on fish and on fly fishing. So uh, we, we've got some uh, questions for you. Uh, I don't know, maybe a place to start, though, before we, we talk about fish and, and fishing is, uh, uh, yeah, just tell us a little bit how this unfolded, maybe even some of the numbers that you were sharing with me. I, I think it's just hard to wrap our heads around what, what happened. It's really unfathomable. As you guys know, I'm an addict of and uh, kind of OCD about snowpack, USGS stream flows, and 10-day weather. That's what I live by. In March, things were grim. The rivers were at almost historical low level. Snowpack was crummy, and everybody was hanging crepe on another hoodowl uh, drought summer. Well, I was talking to Roger Nelson at Nelson's and said, we never wear anything here at the ranch until about the 1st of June, and which is the way I feel, too. Because mm-hmm. We get all the water in the, in the mountains, honestly, in, the, in March, April, May. It started raining and snowing in April. And then the, in the first of May, I looked at stuff and I said, you know what? This looks eerily like 1996, which was the last 100-year flood. And so I have a friend that that has built that snow tell thing I've always talked to you guys about. And I called him up. I said, would you have coffee with me? Because I'm going to write a letter to the editor here because people think we're having a drought, and I don't think we are anymore. In fact, I think it's the opposite. And he said, sure. So he met. He verified what I said. He had tons of data, 87-year-old guy, still active in this world. He consults for Northwestern Energy on managing Evgen Dam at 87, puts on his snowshoes and trudges around the mountain looking after his children, which are all those gauges. So we had our meeting verified what I thought, which is that we potentially in our way to trouble. So from the 4th of May, when I had that coffee meeting until June 1, all it did was build snowpack. There were, I told Steve there were 40 days there between May 4 and middle of June, basically, where all the snowpack built every day but four. And so we had massive snowpack. I mean, it's you look at that, it's biblical stuff. I was telling Steve this morning, the Bitterroot snowpack is like 15,000 or 13,000, something crazy, 13,000%. And the Smith Judith is the same way. It's it's four-digit um, percentages for like 8,000% of the 30-year average. I, I can't even fathom what that looks like. But driving out here this morning looking at the Jefferson tobacco roots, you guys know where they are. There's a snow line, and below the snow line, all this stuff is melted, right? But that's normal. But if you look the snow line up, looking at the tobacco roots, and you guys have driven out here, it's the dead of winter up there. And so the the Jefferson right now, the Jefferson drainage this morning, is at 500% of the 30-year average. The Yellowstone was teeing up for uh, some trouble. And I take no joy, and I'm not anybody special or all that smart. But I told some friends and some people I know that whose lives spin around the Yellowstone drainage that about six, seven days ago or eight days ago, I said, I looked at the short-term weather. It's going to get warm, and then it's going to rain. And I let these people know that have some stuff at stake. I said, you should get ready 
Unfortunately, I was right. And then it was exacerbated by the fact that it got warmer and and more rain. It rained a lot. I think somebody told me up there that engage up to paradise. They got like four inches in 24 hours. So it was, uh, it was snowing, snow, a rain, actually warm rain, all things considered, on top of snow. That is the lethal combination. I mean, it was, it was fortunately not lethal. That hasn't killed anybody yet, but it drove the rivers up at such an astounding rate. I'm type A about looking at Snowtel in the USGS streamflows in the morning. The dog gets me up at 5 o'clock, I let her out, punch up my phone, and I look. So I look at Livingston like 5.30 in the morning. Livingston was at 21,800. That's a lot of water, but that's well below the... The 1996 flood level of 31,200, I think is what it was, or 31-something. 30, and so I thought, well, that's a lot of water, but it's got a ways to go to the to the 100-year flood level. Quarter to 9, 8.45, I looked at Livingston again. The gauge is broken. It's been obviously damaged or washed away. Or it got damaged, I think, probably by debris. So the gauge is not working, but it, when it quit working, it quit working at 33,300 which is oh, a new right. historical record. Then, as I mentioned, I looked at it again at at 10 o'clock or 10.30 thereabouts. It's still broken. And I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll look at Corwin Springs. You guys know where that is. Yeah. Like, what, two-thirds of the way up to Gardner thereabouts? Right, so headed towards Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep, towards Yellowstone, upstream on the Yellowstone is south there. So it's confusing to people who are all used to rivers going the other direction. You go by Pine Creek, you go by right. Big Creek, you go by Mill, yeah. you go by Mulheron, there's Seuss Creek down there at the bottom of the valley. So there's a fair number of tribs that are coming out. So I just did mental math looking at Corwin Springs at 48,000 CFS at 1030. And I said, so what's that mean in Livingston? Well, I have the, if there's seven of them, say they average... 1,500, so that's 10,000. Add 10,000 onto 48, what do you get? You get something close to 60,000 CFS, where the historic high is 31,000 CFS. Wow, just wow. The gauge started working again. They got it working, and it spit out all the the old stuff. So the the high number, I think, actually was 58,000. So my math was pretty good, and uh, 58,000 has never been seen in recorded history they have some data they don't have any data that's the thing they have some accounts from 1918 that that apparently was a whopper too but the accounts that exist from 1918 show a flood nowhere even close to this one wow so this is this is biblical who's the last person that saw this hard to say probably god i mean it's been nothing ever been like that in the in the Recorded history, and I don't know about geologic history, but certainly at some point it must have been pretty big water because it carved out Yankee Jim, right? So it's yeah. it's um it's hard to fathom though how much water that is. And then the the unfortunate thing is there's a lot of people running around that have declared they haven't declared victory. You nobody's going to declare a victory, but they've declared this over. But as I just got through telling you, it isn't over. We have a lot of snow. The destruction is just unbelievable, and destruction to infrastructure, to homes, 
um, obviously to the ecosystem, the economic ecosystem of Gardner, Yellowstone, northern, uh, the northern Yellowstone area. But let's, let's move our conversation to trout. So historically, from what you know, what do trout do during a flood like this? Does anyone really know? I'm sure biologists have studied this, but what, what really happens to the fish? I'm sure that's been studied. I, I've never actually looked at a study of that, but it would be worth running a Google just to see what you come up with. I'm sure it's been studied. But from a practical standpoint, from an anecdotal evidence, which is pretty strong because I've done this for so many years, the, the high water obviously pushes fish to the extremities. They can't survive. You can go along these rivers even when they're cooking and off color and just dump rubber legs in the little soft beckings and jiggle them around. And you'll catch an occasional trout. Sometimes you'll catch a few. It's not something I don't, I don't aesthetically like to do that, but they're, that's where they are. And the place where I've done it the most is the Gallatin because it's close. I don't get anywhere near the Yellowstone like this like that. That's a dangerous river. But you can walk along the Gallatin and find a little back in a little soft thing. And I'm not, I'm talking about wash tub size stuff. The bigger, softer things, uh, they carry more fish. So that's where they go. And this is something I don't know scientifically, but I do know that cone development in the eyes of fish is pretty primitive. They don't see the full array of colors that we do, but they do see things and we know what they are, the iridescence, the tones, the, the stuff that makes flies work. So I don't think they see very well, but if you're, if you're jiggling a rubber leg down there long enough, um, they'll either bump into it or they'll see something, but they definitely keep feeding. And uh, stuff is, of course, being washed around it. Is there any evidence that mortality rate increases during a flood of this magnitude? Or do they, they pretty much figure out how to stay safe? I mean, it's pretty obvious that we've had flood after flood after flood after flood after flood for millennia. And you know what? The trout are still there. So yeah. it's, they, they figure it out. And Mother Nature is very harsh. Yeah, yeah. Mother Nature does not believe in the Bambi movie. Um, she is very harsh. She kills a lot of stuff and does a lot of things, but she's remarkably uh, caring, too, because once things are done and she's cleaned up what she wants to clean up, then everything returns. So, like, 96 is the last time I saw anywhere. I mean, that wasn't even anywhere near this, but 96 yeah. was the last 100-year flood that I saw. I remember and, that. Um, I, lived, I lived, my folks were in Paradise Valley then. I, I remember that year distinctly. Yep. So, it blew out the... It cut a hole in the bank and blew out Armstrong and Nelson's. But the road from, for example, Livingston to Gardner was intact the whole time. So that summer, as soon as the rivers came down, and by the way, I floated the uh, Spring Creek Channel. You could float down Armstrong's and parted the pews and then duck back in the river for quite a while until they fixed it. But once the river cleaned, cleaned up and returned to fishable levels, fishing was pretty good. Now, as a guy, as an angler, guide, outfitter angler, the river didn't look the same. I mean, there were things gone, new things, new channels. Took a while to figure out, and I think it takes the fish a little while to figure out where the new home is going to be in some of these stretches. So some things that were there before are literally gone, and yeah. some things that look like they ought to be good that are kind of brand new, there are really not a lot of animals in those yet because they haven't figured it out but they're resilient so the fishing returns quickly once they got the 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 spring creek thing fixed up i know i had a fall trip on on the pews where the beta hatch was unbelievable 
there's hardly any vegetation in the stream, but the bugs redistribute. They're there. Don't ask me how that works, but that's God and Mother Nature. That's this is this is normal. You know, this is not normal, but this is natural. I guess is a better word. Yeah. But normal for nature. It sounds like it. It doesn't mess with the aquatic insects and thus the hatches, or only incrementally, or perhaps not significantly in a way that affects fish at all? I don't think that ecosystems change forever. I mean, there's always some things. I mean, young of the year fish, they live in the extremities. And so they have nowhere else to go except keep moving into the extremities. It, it pushes everybody together. So, I don't know, predation increases, but certainly that small animal that doesn't have the physical strength, some of the, I would guess, Young of the year are just susceptible. So I'll bet you there's a young of the year decline. Um, certainly be some mortality. It's inescapable. Some fish are going to get smacked and crushed with the debris, um, pushed into places where they're stranded and then die when the water dries. But the fact of the matter is, this is the thing that people don't realize, is that in these river systems, Mother Nature is killing 30 to 40% of the fish every year anyway. And mm -hmm. so it's it's natural. It's Believe not to not believe by a lot of people who think if we left the fish alone, we'll walk from bank to banks on the back of 18-inch fish, and that's just not true. That's never true. And so it's um, it's resilient. Things will return. If there's a young year decline, this is something that Dick Vincent, the medicine biologist, told me about the Hebgen Dam failure, because I talked to him about that a lot. And, and he said, we've had this sort of thing before where that we get a young of the year population decline for, from a natural occurring event of some kind. And he said, almost inevitably, it, it creates an increased growth rate amongst the remaining fish. Is there yeah. just more food? So Vincent told me, oh, that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's that simple. This stuff is not rocket science. It's more food because the, the pressure on the benthic or the insect community that in, in a normal environment the greatest pressure comes from all the juveniles. That's what eats everything. So if those things get whacked down, the remaining fish don't have as much competition from all the little squirts running around stealing their food. So they get bigger. It's that simple. And uh, Vincent said, I would expect to see an increased growth rate. And he said, I hope the FWP will do some early season shocking. No, I don't. They're not going to do any early season shocking now. But it, it is fascinating stuff. If you like science and you're in an angler, this has been, notwithstanding the human tragedy, the, the, the science side and the angling side, to me, I find fascinating. I want to see how fast these recover. Um, the Spring Creeks filled again. Armstrong, uh, Armstrong and uh, the Pews filled with river water, but I don't think it breached. If you remember, Steve, the channel that cut from the Yellowstone over to the O'Hare's, Mm -hmm. I floated that after the river went down, and hell, the water was going in. I knew you could get out, so I went in there and floated. That channel looked like it had been created by man, like it, like somebody had a bunch of D9 cats, and they just went through there, and they ripped a channel in one day. Mm -hmm. It was a mechanical-looking ditch. Wow. There's nothing natural about that. So that didn't happen this year, but the, the water went into the spring creeks, but I understand that it's already receded. So that's part of the deal. The spring creeks actually can stand a little bit of scouring. Before man built all the riprap, mm -hmm. I'm guessing the spring creeks got scoured every few years. 
Huh. But we've built up so much riprap along that river that it's not getting in there anymore. So, except that these hundred-year flood or thousand-year flood uh, stuff. So, but the spring creeks are already, I think, recovering. Nelson's has the great big wall on the upper end of the property. That thing, I'll, I would like to. I, I doubt there are any pictures. I don't know who would have taken them, but I would like to see where the water got on the million-dollar wall there. Uh, maybe your dad knows. Was he up there on that part of it? Yeah, my sister-in-law's dad. I, I think he was. He was trying to. Yeah, he was moving yeah, some yeah. riprap around or something, and uh, I, I think he might have been on that. Yeah. The, the river will recover. I'm sure there's going to be some changes, uh, but this the stuff will all come back. I mean, it always does. It's here now, and I'm sure this happens somewhere over the millennia, and it's still. It's still full of fish. So, here's a quick question: We, you and I, have, and Steve have talked about catch and release and the importance of that, but also the fact that what you just said is pretty stunning. That the river is going to kill thirty to forty percent of the fish every year, and that, yeah. and, and so catch and release, it's important, and um, how you release, how quickly you release the fish, but ultimately nature is much more brutal than our fly fishers on these fish. Would you say yeah. that's true? No, that's true. And to be honest with you, and this is heresy amongst fly fishermen, fishing pressure really doesn't make much difference. If you look at all the studies, and there are some where fishing pressure has caused some population decline. Mother Nature balances that a lot. If there's a little mortality from fishing, then she may do something. But the overall mortality does not increase from fishing pressure. It just doesn't. And everybody will say, oh, I got this example. Talk to the biologists deeply about this. It does not increase overall mortality significantly. It just doesn't. And so what we do and how we release them is important from a sport fishing standpoint. If you got a nice fish and you, you hope somebody else will catch it or you'll catch it again someday, you want to be careful. You want to just kill stuff and throw it away indiscriminately, but it all balances out to the overall mortality rates are somewhere around 30, 40%, and angling pressure does not really change it much. And it's, it's, I didn't believe that either when I first heard it, but I've heard that from so many biologists, including our fathers of wild trout management around the world, Ron Marcoux, Dick Vincent, that I, I know that that's true. So that, Catch and release is always important. You don't want to indiscriminately kill fish you don't have to catch. So you land them when they're still fresh, fresh, and they don't have a lot of, of uh, uh, lactic acid build up and make sure they can swim away. If you're catching fish hand over fist, this is when I do it. I honestly don't pitch barbs unless it's required by law or the fishing is so good, I just want to get them off fast, and I don't care if they fall off. But I use a barb because you can land them faster. And I always tell people, that's my story to anglers. Hey, you got this fish hooked, playing a little bit. You don't need to teach them how to swim. Put the heat on this thing and get it in when it's still got some life left in it. I do not want to land a dead fish. So I'm kind of mean about that. Somebody's fiddling around on 6X tippet forever with some fish. I said, hey, look, get that thing landed. If it comes off, it comes off. You can Photoshop a picture. I, I mean, it's, that's the only reason. <laughs> That's but good. Play them, a lot of people play them on light tackle till they're dead, literally. The yeah. plastic acid built up in a in a marathon athlete to the point where it's poisonous and they don't properly cool down, they get seriously ill and they can kill them. 
So the lactic acid buildup in trout is the same way. If you've played one for a long time, then you owe it a fair amount of time in recovery. Mm. You know, holding it in the net in return, making sure you're not dumping it on top of the real silty thing where they're not going to get as much oxygen. That's the one thing. If you play them for a while, then you need to give them, a, they need to get to where you put your hands across their shoulders. You cannot hold on to them anymore. That's helpful, Dave. Yeah. This is one more thing I'm going to throw in there. Okay. People need to use nets. They need uh, to use nets. Yeah. The, the interval between the time that you hook them and land them is the critical thing in survival. And you can land them, as you guys well know, because you use them. You can land them way faster than a net if you're trying to fill around and land them to hand. Mm-hmm. And to hand is no sign of fishing expertise. I think it's a sign of stupidity. And if my friends take offense at that, tough. Get a <laughs> net. Hey, maybe one last thing. Are, are there any other significant lessons or things we ought to be aware of in the aftermath of flooding like this? Any, anything else that strikes you that we ought to be aware of? There is still literally biblical snowpack left. And we have gotten to the point in the season where it is getting hot. It is getting, I'm smoking hot in my truck right now. And it's getting. A, it's not going to cool off anymore significantly. I, I look at Cook City weather. Cook City is going to be up in the 70s in the daytime, and the lo- nighttime lows are just a little below 50. So there's no more hard freezes coming. And there's enough water, you guys, in, in these drainages in the state of Montana. People need to stay vigilant, and I mean vigilant, vigilant. Did you see the story about the, the uh, Yellowstone Park lady who woke up at 5 o'clock to go to work just before her house was four other families slipped into the river. Did you see that one? No, I no. didn't. Wow. So there's a, a, a park-owned home that's, you guys would probably know it. It's a four-family home. It's got to be. Oh, yeah. And I did see the yeah. video of that sliding into the water. And I, yeah, I, we've driven by that dozens of times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know where that is. But yeah. nobody let them know this was going on. And if she hadn't gotten up to go to work early, that could have been a tragedy. That would have oh, been a tragedy. Yeah. Wow. She got everybody out of there, and that house was gone within an hour. Oh, my goodness. So That's... so people need to remain vigilant. That's the one thing. This is not over, and I'm not being maudlin about it. It's just the reality of the fact yeah. that we have epic snowpack left, and we don't have any any weather that's going to stop anything. So if it gets really hot, and you got if it got really hot and we got another 4-inch, 24-hour rainfall, that's a disaster. Mm. And the people in Red Lodge, God bless them, they had Rock Creek going right down through the middle yeah. of town. I'm sure you saw that. Yeah. So two days ago, when this started to recede, they got a full-blown 24-7 sandbag filling community-wide project going. And their Rock Creek is going back up as we speak. And so they're trying to get ready. And our leaders, if anybody listens to this, our, our emergency management leaders and politicians and stuff, this ain't over, baby. And, and we need to free up the resources to get ahead of this because we could, it is quite possible. I'm not going to say likely, but it is quite possible that we could get a repeat. Everybody's going to say, oh, anything happened. A lot of it came out. Let me tell you what, a lot of it did come out, but it built. It's still built during that period because it was still raining and it froze at night. It cooked. So the upper levels are still building snow water. They won't today because it's hot. So that's one thing. Stay vigilant. Don't do anything stupid. There's no reason to get near any of these rivers yet and do a whole bunch of camping in the place that you you can't escape from. 
in, in just those kinds of stuff. Don't take it for granted that the newspapers and the media are right about this being done. It's not done. And uh, is it going to do the biblical thing? I don't know. I didn't think it was going to do the first time, and that's what it did. So that. And then give another Mother Nature some time. Don't go out and get your hair on fire because the fishing wasn't very good. She'll fix things up. <laughs> and uh, just understand this is part of the part of the process. And uh, But people don't need to, to quit fishing, give the fish a break. I don't want to hear that from anybody. Mother Nature will manage this way better than humans do. So just do what you're doing. Take care of the fish. Go fishing as soon as you can get on the water and be safe. Enjoy it. I am uh, going to go tomorrow morning at 4.30 in the morning. We're going to leave. We're going to go to the big hole. The big hole is dropping like a rock, at least temporarily. And the salmon flies are out. So it's nice. Saturday. So we're going at 4.30 from Bozeman so that we can beat the 15,000 people that are going to come from Butte. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, we're envious. But, I hope you have a great time. Hey, thanks again, Dave, for joining us. We look forward to fishing with you again and uh, to our next conversation. I look forward to that, too. I always enjoy talking with you guys, and I look forward to fishing. Um, wherever it might be, when you get back out here, uh, we'll, we'll go do it, uh, God willing. All right. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. 